Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Bootstrap Founder Podcast. My name is Avid Kahl, and I'll be talking about how you can start, run, and sell a bootstrap business without burning out. This is uh, the episode where we talk about problem validation, making sure you're talking to the right people. So I'm going to go over the article and tell you my thoughts about it. Talk to your customers, they say, because that's the only way to build something people want. That collective wisdom of the bootstrapper scene is not wrong, but talking to your customers is only half the truth. It's just as important to speak to the right kinds of customers as it is to ignore the rest of them. We had a number of these kind of conversations at Feedback Panda, both uh, for validating problems that would Im impact the main product and the problems that would impact our integrations. I'll share the thought process for conducting these kind of conversations and what we were looking for in a good fit for a person to talk to. Your goal in every problem exploration and validation conversation is to find your prospective customer's problems and figure out which ones are the critical ones. But what is their goal? What motivates them to have this kind of conversation with you is a question you really need to ask yourself. They might try and be supportive, try to leave a good impression or show their expertise, or they just might to try to weasel a better price out of you. People can be really selfish in many often unexpected ways. Um, make sure you're talking to somebody who is really aligned with your goals. If your customer's goals are not conduct conducive to finding your critical problems or finding their critical problems, you risk getting further away from problem validation while they get what they want. And you can only really sustain your business if your goals are aligned with theirs and your goals are fulfilled as well. So how can you learn more about their underlying goals and aspirations? You won't be able to detect this before you start talking to them. And that's one of these things you always see uh, when people tell you what, or when you ask people what to do, uh, when it comes to problem validation, you need to speak to your customers. So you can only figure out goals and aspirations if you have an actual conversation. You'll have to observe your conversation with them, discover if they're a good or bad fit, and only act on the interactions that show signs of goal alignment while discarding all the others. The best case conversation is an in-person conversation with an industry expert who has skin in the game and is aligned with your goals. You want in-person conversation. It's really important. Calls are fine too, but a face-to-face -face interaction allows for presence both for you and them, and it will enable you to detect emotional distress and confusion much better than if you just were writing, texting back and forth. The important part is that you can reliably and immediately steer the conversation towards problem validation, the thing you're doing, should it ever be derailed. That's why real-time video is preferable to text or async approaches. You wanna be able to react. And please understand that it's a conversation, not an interview. You're, you're not trying to get measurable answers to prefabricated questions. You're trying to extract and discover problems, right? If you are in the problem validation step of what you're doing, you don't really know what's really there. So you're trying to figure stuff out and it will be a different conversation every single time. For your prospective customer, you want them to be an expert in the industry. And that doesn't mean they need to be a leader or an influencer or anything like that, but they just should know a lot of it. They should have been in there for quite a bit. There 
is an argument to make for interviewing the whole spectrum of skill levels, right? All kinds of people as your product might be useful to any stage of expertise. But the likelihood to surface interesting problems is much higher if you interview an expert. After all, they had gone through all of these stages before, before they ended up where they are now, right? If you interview an expert, they have been a novice at some point. They have been an intermediate. They, they have been at all these kind of stages. While if you just interview a novice, you'll get their perspective, but that's going to be it. An expert can put themselves into where they were a couple of years ago and understand if the problems they had then were truly problems that required a solution or if that was just like some sort of knowledge gap. So you always want to speak to an expert, a veteran maybe of the industry, somebody who's been there for a bit. That is a, an important part when it comes to finding the right people. Having skin in the game, and that's the third part after in-person and expert, um, means that you have or that they have something to gain from using better tools and they have something to lose if they do not. You want a prospect that needs to be a winner in the industry. And if they don't care about their work, if they don't they won't care about their problems and they they're going to be a yeah subpar candidate for your problem validation efforts right if if you can't really measure how much a problem impact, impacts their lives because they don't care about it how's it going to help you build a business around it so let's talk about preparing for problem validation conversations um we'll talk about what to avoid in the people in a in a couple minutes but first, we need to start with you, the founder, the person asking the questions. Because to prevent misleading communication that might trip you up your customers, you'll be, have to be aware of how humans communicate. And it's a, quite a safe bet to read the book, The Mom Test by Rob Fitzpatrick, a book that goes into great detail about the psychology of human communication, about ideas and problems, with a focus on the kinds of conversations you'll be having as an entrepreneur. And um, I'm not going to talk about like, every single piece of the book here, but I'm going to, uh, I guess, talk about two things. Um, one of them is that you'll need to introduce ideas indirectly by asking about the validity of the underlying problems. Um, better yet, don't even even introduce your ideas at all, because <laughs> honestly, uh, it's, it's about problem validation, not idea validation, right? You don't want to talk about your great product. You want to see if the problem that your product is solving is actually real. So you want to guide your customer towards exploring the problem space surrounding the idea itself, right? Or your ideas, like whatever, however many you have, you'd want to try and figure out, um, do they have the problem and is it critical? If you seed your ideas, you'll taint the explorative nature of the conversation. If you put an idea in somebody's mind, they will think of this all the time, taking away the space from other things. It's like giving away the ending of a book too soon, right? You cannot enjoy or just even um, explore the kind of breadth of potential if there's already something in the background. All of a sudden, this conversation will then be steered towards your idea instead of exploring problems, and that's what you have the conversation for. So that leads us to the second thing that I want to talk about. Um, don't talk, just listen. Ask a lot of questions, doesn't count as talking, but don't go into explanations. And in a problem validation conversation, the customer is the expert, not you. You may be an expert. You may be more knowledgeable about the industry than they are. That's like it's always, or at least at some points, it's gonna happen. It's gonna be somebody who has no clue and you know better, but that is the a good sign because that shows you that the problems that they have 
are something you might not even see as a problem. So, um, it, and these are the people you will need to convince to uh, them and their peers, I guess, to buy your product in the future. So your expertise will make no difference if your prospective customers don't think that your product solves any of the critical problems, right? So don't talk, just listen to what they have to say. So let's talk about pr prospective customers to avoid. There's, because there's a couple of things you can uh, avoid to get as close to the best case that we talked about earlier as possible. Let's start with avoiding people who are trying to please you. Because compliments, as great as they are, they're a problem. They don't help you. If compliments happen, you have to ignore them and point out that they're not wanted. You have to talk to people and tell them clearly, thank you for being great and telling me that I'm great, but this is a problem validation conversation, right? I'm trying to figure out what's, what's wrong, not what is great. Because if you wanted to have like a success case conversation, it doesn't bring you anywhere. It doesn't move you forward. So if a customer continues to compliment everything you do, the data will not help you. You could still salvage these kind of conversations by just really diving deeply into their problems and the implications of these kind of problems. But you have to completely ignore any of their opinions about your product, your ideas, or your plans. All of this stuff doesn't matter. Focus exclusively on their day-to-day -day operations and redirect all talk of your product towards their own experiences. Deflect any kind of compliment. Because, um, yeah, if you, if you let this go to your head, it will be completely pointless to have a conversation that is trying to make you learn new things you didn't know before, because compliments are always about existing things. Whenever I had a conversation with a customer that was overly passionate, I guess, about telling me that everything we did was perfect, I would be grateful without encouraging further compliments. And that would happen on intercom mostly, like customer service conversations, but also in these kind of problem validation or problem exploration conversations that we had through many, many different startups. I would always say, thanks, I'll let the team know, just to satisfy their desire to show gratitude and, and to be acknowledged for it. And then I would use that to help steer the conversation towards a more neutral place where it is actually a conversation and not them congratulating me on anything. So that would be the first thing, avoiding people trying to please you. Second one, avoid people who have no skin in the game. If your prospects don't have access to the budget or have no impact in business decisions, you will not get the full picture. They might surface new problems, but if you can't learn about the perceived value of a solution for those problems from a budgetary position and perspective, you might build a product that's not generating enough overall value for people to purchase it, even though they might like it, right? But it's still, if there's no skin in the game, um, both in a budgetary sense and uh, in something I'll be talking about in a second, you will not get the full picture. Ideal candidates are enthusiastic about where things are going. They want to participate in the change that makes the industry better. They want to be they want to be either the winners or they want to know where the winners are and follow them, which is also interesting for product positioning. But we'll be talking about this in a in a different episode in a blog post I have yet to write. If they don't care about their problems or if they're apathetic, you'll see a distorted perspective on their jobs. Like you will only see their really muted kind of perspective. Imagine a worker who knows that they'll quit a month from now, will their viewpoint on which problems to solve for them right now be aligned with creating a product that solves long-term issues for their business? I don't think so. Wouldn't you rather talk to somebody who plans on having a career in the industry for years to come? Definitely, right? So if they're apathetic and if they don't care, 
um, it's not going to help you because it, it's going to skew the where problems are. Right? Because they might ignore them. They might not care about them because they are beyond where they need to care about them. If you run into these kind of people, if you run into prospects like this, ask for introductions. Ask them to connect you with a peer or a superior, which is harder, but yeah, might happen. That might help you explore and validate problems in the industry better and with more in-depth insight. You want them to help you find other people that are better suited for this kind of conversation and give you a warm introduction. Honestly, we didn't have a lot of these conversations. Uh, I didn't have these because most of the customers that I talked with, particularly in the beginning, were skin in the game people, you know, early adopters in a way. They always uh, put themselves behind these kind of things. Um, but the ones we had, the one, the kind of conversations we had, they were over reasonably soon. Don't be afraid to stop the conversation, honestly. Just thank them and move on with your day. Because your time is precious, particularly as a founder. And if they don't care, they'll be glad to be left alone, to be honest. So having no skin in the game, avoid people like this. Next one, avoid people who only tell you their ideas. If you're validating a problem, um, you're really looking at the problem, not about the ideas and assumptions your customer has. If they're barraging you with their ideas, you'll be limited to the outcomes of their perception, not the reality of their problem. And customers have a hard time understanding what they truly value. They don't understand the, their own perception, like the, their own kind of rose-colored glasses on the world around them, or just like the, yeah, they're, they're limited to what they know and what they understand they know. They know the known knowns, right? but they don't know the unknown unknowns in their lives and in their professional lives as well. And there's another thing. Experts can be blinded by years of routine, overvaluing status quo and undervaluing paradigm shifting improvements. Some experts think that the way things have been done are the way things should always be, do, be done. And that's that. So if they start telling you ideas about like minuscule marginal improvements, well, that is a sign that they are not interested in actually finding problems and exploring them. It's just about staying where they are. And there's, there's this is saying, you know, like the, the Henry Ford saying that uh, people want faster horses when you ask them how you could improve mobility. Supposedly, Henry Ford actually never said it. And in the article, I think I'm going to link this, but uh, it still matters. Because you won't get your groundbreaking ideas from people who need that ground to stand on, right? Always be aware of the fact that people will not destroy their like their livelihoods. They will not risk change they cannot cope with. So the moment you hear ideas, um, just see them as what they are. They are a reflection of the reality, of the perception of reality of your customers, but they are not the truth. They are a truth. But there is no objective quality to these kind of ideas. But you can get something out of them. Just ask your prospect why they thought of them. It's a really easy trick, right? They give you this weird idea that you've heard thousands of times before or never because it's crazy. But just ask them. Like, have them tell you the steps that led to the idea. Note down the assumptions and completely ignore the idea. Try to ignore it. Like, physically get it out of your mind. Because within those assumptions... You'll find hints of problems, 
And those can be useful for your exploration of the problem space, right? There's going to be all these little things that are just hidden, sometimes subconscious assumptions that you could find from having somebody explain how they got to an idea. I've learned to deal with the idea dispensing kind of customer through the day-to-day conversations I had doing customer service, mostly for Feedback Panda. That gave me lots of opportunities to learn how to redirect the flow of the conversation towards the underlying problems while acknowledging the idea with a, what did I say? We have added this to our list of ideas and we'll discuss it in our next feature design meeting. Statements, statements like this will let your customers understand you won't be creating this feature anytime soon, but you're aware of it having been suggested and are now vetting it. And it's important because you tell people not only, okay, we had it, have added it to the list, but, but you tell them, okay, we're going to talk about this in the business. So we get to, uh, um, I always said, I will talk to Danielle about this because we were the only two people in the business. And if it's a good idea, then we'll do it. So now you're telling them you're vetting an idea. And it can help immediately to dive into the reasons for them recommending it because now they feel involved in the vetting process of your business. And particularly when talking to early stage customers, early adopters or innovators, even the people before, um, having them involved in this process is incredibly nice because they will spare no effort. Like we had people who would do 20 minute screencasts of our project or of our product just to show us Um, what they think should be done, where the problems are, where the problems are even without our product, where the problems were in their space. They would show us the web portals that they would teach through and where they have to click and how it's annoying and how they set up their Word documents and all these kind of things. It was super helpful to see what kind of service we should be giving because we took these people and we allowed them into our process by telling them, you help us but with every kind of piece of information about your problem, not about your ideas or how you think it should be solved, but just describing your life. That kind of uh, approach, it's like judoing their idea into something useful for you. So the moment people come up with only ideas, try to always bring it down to the problem level beneath them. Finally, I guess the last thing to avoid is people who love complaining. The complaining is... It's a German custom, to be quite honest. We complain all the time. And this might sound like a complaint, now I'm thinking about it. But complaining is a, is a problem when it's done all the time, right? In some cases, you'll run into a customer that'll find fault with every single imaginable thing. They'll complain about their work, their boss, their colleagues, their partners, the impact all of this has on their lives, and even about the tools that were made so they could have an easier time. Like, they'll complain about work. They complain about Excel. If they're customers of your product, they'll complain about your product. They complain about every single thing. Within um, or while you are having these kind of conversations, you can find good problems to work on, but they will be buried under an avalanche of nuisances and annoyances. All these kinds of problems that are not critical, right? So digging through a heap of irrelevance like this may not be worth their time. So you can salvage these conversations by severely limiting the scope of your questions and their answers by kind of reining them in. Ask them to name the most important thing, the job that takes them the longest. Prime them to look for the extremes. That is the only way you can actually get something out of people who love complaining about everything is find the thing that they would like to complain about most because that is likely the most critical problem or at least the most noticeable one. And... All of these four categories, um, people who love to compliment you, having no skin in the game, only tell you their ideas or love complaining, 
if you had a conversation like that, um, that in retrospect seems biased towards one of these four, do not act on it. That's very important. Write down what led you to the to suspecting the bias and use that in future discussions to end them once you detect it again. It'll feel like a waste of time, honestly. And I've I've struggled for many, many years to do this, but dismissing information is a necessary part of validating problems. You you go through all these conversations and you maybe you spend half an hour before you notice it, or you spend an hour and talk to people, and then you write down all these things, maybe you record it and you do uh you like text to or speech to text and you have all this stuff and it's pointless because the whole conversation was done with a person that was only trying to please. You notice that in, in retrospect. That sucks, right? You don't want to waste your time. But honestly, it is not a waste of time. It is a part of filtering data and you only want real, actionable, useful data. And if that means you have to, yeah, kind of bite the bullet and say, this is not a helpful conversation, even though we talked about problems, but I feel that this might not be helpful, then it won't be helpful. So like follow your instinct on these kind of things and act against the your internal argument that you will likely produce is that every single conversation needs to produce value. Value is not a list of problems that comes out of it. Value is also the fact that a list of problems that came out of it is not actionable for you. So think about it as part of the problem validation effort. Okay, let's talk about a couple things finally um, to consider when it comes to talking to prospective customers. Um, one of the things that people ask me to talk and speak about uh, and to write about is it's hard to find and reach out to prospective customers, right? Often you'll need to employ cold outreach strategies. You'll have to just email people or something. And I find that if you have to do cold outreach, you can still do it through a lukewarm channel, if the analogy hits here. If you're already close to your prospects by hanging out at their water cooler, their social media groups, their communities, place a message that you will be reaching out to respected members of the community to do some research. We did this with Feedback Panda. We were in Facebook groups for these online teachers, and we had been there, Danielle had been there long before we started the business, but we'd been part of a community. And when we, in I remember one thing in particular, we were launching uh, an integration that was itself a standalone application, like an Electron-based uh, browser extension injector. It was really cool when it comes to the, the technical details of it, but I'm not going to talk about this. Um, unless, you, unless you would like me to, uh, just let me know, I guess, and I'll, I'll talk about the technical parts. But um, we sent a message to the Facebook group telling people that we would be gonna we'd be going to do exactly that. We would be reaching out to respected members of the community to ask them for help with our integration. And this kind of priming had two really cool effects. Some people started reaching out to us and asked to be interviewed, like the self-perceived respected member of the community. And other people who didn't reach out to us, but we actually reached out to them, had a point of reference when we sent them the email, having read about it within the trust context of the Facebook community that they knew and trusted. So if you do stuff like this, if you do cold, put something out there and it's not as cold anymore, right? If you if you can't find your communities and I, I bet there is a community, I mean, just look at Reddit, 
just uh, look at Facebook. These gigantic platforms have communities for every single thing, and you will find a community that is pretty much a target group of your business. And if you don't, then you need to niche down and find the niche. That is at least um, how we found these kind of groups. Because obviously on Facebook, there's teacher groups with hundreds of thousands of teachers, but that's not good enough. We needed online English, ESL, uh, Chinese student uh, teachers who would teach Chinese students. That is what we would look for. And we found it. And these communities were full of trusting members. They were tribe essentially, right? Like what Seth Godin said, an interconnected group of people that follows a leader has a shared interest. That is what we found. Find the tribes and seed that you will speak to the respected members. Reputation in tribes is fairly important. People will do a lot to gain tribal reputation within their group. So by being part of this, by, by allowing people to get either get reputation by being part of something or feel reputable by taking part in it, you have a lot of pre-warming of this kind of uh, yeah outreach. So it's not cold anymore. And the most important thing after this, call. Use video chat if you can, even if it's just you on the screen, if they don't want to share, make time to build a connection with your prospect. It is imperative for you to be a person, to be personable, to be a founder and use your founderness to build a relationship with the customer. Because you are not Microsoft. You are not this gigantic company that does a survey and pulls in information and then you're out of it, right? You want to build a connection because not only does it give you interesting insight into the psyche of your, of your users, it also turns them into evangelists. That happened almost all the time. When we talked to somebody who would help us do something, it would immediately turn it into somebody who would speak extremely positively about a product, about me, about Danielle, about the business, about the industry, about our customers, all these things. You turn people into evangelists. Into they, they, they just shout it from the rooftops. The moment you turn them, you build a relationship with them. You turn them into somebody who works on your product with you. It is incredible what you can do if you have these kind of evangelists. They did our marketing for us for Feedback Panda. We did some marketing too, obviously, but the marketing that they did for us by just speaking to other teachers in their Facebook groups by posting links to our product. Even, like you have, to, you have to imagine that they posted links to our product without us having a referral system. They still wanted to refer people to our product without gaining anything from it. Which, if you look at it through the lens of a tribal dynamic, they still build a reputation by sharing. So finding tribes and making people your kind of agents, avatars of your business inside the tribe, incredibly important. And you can only do that by having a human connection and human connections happen through the human voice, which is why I'm talking to you right now, right? Because you can read my stuff, but me telling you what I'm doing is building a much deeper connection. And I wanna be connected to you and you would like to know what I have to say. So this is a medium that works really well. And it's the same for you and your customers who you wanna build a lifelong relationship with, right? You wanna build a, a business relationship around money, but you also wanna build a reputation relationship and a trust relationship 
and uh, just like an acknowledge, an, yeah, acknowledgement relationship. So I'll call them, video chat. Best, of course, if they're in the same city, meet up, right? That also works, but uh, most software as a service businesses are displaced, I guess, from their customers, or they have so many that it doesn't really work. But um, talking about this, um, you can find people at two other gathering places that are actually real world places. And if you're in B2B SaaS, it's going to be easier. If you're in B2B SaaS, huh, I don't know, maybe you should question doing a bootstrap business to begin with, but that is also a topic for another podcast. But two places, industry conferences, where conversations are usually quite formal because people are in their professional setting or meetups where informal chats are possible. And you'll find a less censored version of people's perspective on their industry and meetups too. Both of these events allow you to have face-to-face conversations with industry experts or people that are new to the industry but want to be experts, so uh, ambitious people. And introductions can be made on the fly without having to go through email or phone calls. Like People can actually take you by the hand and introduce you to somebody else. And particularly at conferences and conventions, these people will be extremely densely packed, right? So going to an industry conference in the industry you're going to be served, you're going to be serving is imperative if you want to find the right people to actually talk to um, when it comes to problem validation or problem exploration kind of things. At FIFA Fan, we actually had a combination of this conference and meetup. Danielle organized a teacher meetup on the same day that a teacher conference by one of these big Chinese companies happened in Chicago. And she invited our customers to come over after the conference day was over. She booked a bar and free drinks for everybody. And we had Feedback Panda swag, which was also um, really well thought out. Danielle had a, a genius idea of getting two things, lip balm and webcam covers. Webcam covers and lip balm were the two things that these teachers really, really needed because obviously they were teaching from their laptops. So a webcam cover would give them some privacy in between lessons. And lip balm is important, as I'm noticing right now, if you speak for an extended period of time, which an online teacher does as well. And this kind of teaching was also like a full body kind of teaching because you need to animate often like six-year-old kids over the internet. So people would yell, they would sing, they would dance, all these kind of things. So it was really helpful to give them something that they could use in their job. And they loved it, right? They, the result was that we met, or Danielle, she was there. I wasn't, um, she met many of our customers, many of them well-connected in the tribe. Of, uh, of the teachers that were our audience. And those connections led to many warm introductions down the line. I would suggest, and this is my very last point, avoiding quantitative methods like surveys or, or emails or something like that. Although emails is fine, but mass emails, that kind of stuff. These methods will not allow you to dive deep into the underlying reasons. And your questions that are in the survey will limit the scope of your replies that you can get um, without and you, you can't really steer the conversations in a survey, right? You, you can steer a conversation in a survey if it's like a multiple choice kind of thing, but that would assume that you know in advance exactly what's going to happen. And I would suggest don't do that. Always try to have a face-to-face, particularly in the beginning of your business, where you need as much information as you can. And a quantitative method is not going to be enough because how many people are you really going to ask? A couple hundred? Like there's something called statistical significance and you're not going to get that. And particularly for something that is in, uh, per definition, a qualitative thing, like exploration of a problem space, uh, a quantitative method will not help you. And the last thing 
I want to say before I come to uh, the conclusion of this, read up and try to be aware of cognitive biases in your own conversation or in, in, in your conversations and in, in your own um, words and things you say. Because uh, both in what you're saying and in how your prospective customer responds, a lot of biases can be found. If possible, record the conversation and do your analysis a few days later when you have a fresh look at it. Um, you're building a long-term business, right? So a few days are a fair price to pay for having a neutral perspective on this essential step of problem validation. So look for uh, anchoring bias or primacy bias, all these kinds of things. Try to really find a good list of cognitive biases, read through it, and see these things for what they are. First off, it's going to help you in any kind of conversation, but particularly in these, it's important to understand that the truth of the reality of your customer and the, the narrative exploration of a customer conversation are not the same. And there will be bias in the conversation where there might not be bias in the reality, and there might be a bias in reality that might be detected and unbiased, I guess, in the conversation. So bring attention to cognitive biases when you see them. Try to circumvent them in your own words and make a note if you detect them in your customer. All right. So uh, I guess these are my thoughts about problem validation. Uh, I am quite happy to talk about this because I feel it's a very, very important part of a business. And I feel it's one of the initial parts of a business that often, extremely often gets overlooked or gets done, uh, let's let's say in a, in a half-assed way, right? Because people, particularly developers, I, might, I count myself as one as well, we look at the product, we look at the idea, and we uh, because that's how we work, right? We when when I need to solve a problem, and when I needed to solve a problem for Feedback Panda on the code base or a feature or a bug was there or something, what did I look for? An immediate solution, either I was gonna build it myself or I was gonna find it somewhere and use it. So our focus to solving problems is product based. It's idea based. It's how can I take this thing that doesn't work and turn it into something that works. But that kind of terminology, the thing that doesn't work and the thing that works does not lend itself to building a business because it's not about that thing that doesn't work because that is just an instance of a problem that may not even be the biggest problem, right? That may not be even an interesting problem to solve. Um, I've been, uh, in, in this week's newsletter, I've, I'm talking about building software as a software engineer for other software engineers. And I've been talking about, uh, thinking about, I guess, the ideas I had over the years of software products that, would love, that I would love to build, that I would love to form another company around. And what were these kind of ideas? I was, I'm thinking about stuff like, oh, I need an API to generate PDFs from an HTML page. I need a, a service that um well i initially i was i was thinking about like message queuing and stuff but it doesn't really matter i i needed a, a service to build a saas or i wanted to build a saas to show custom banners on websites because um we had downtime sometimes and we had maintenance sometimes and we would want to display some kind of big banner on top of the page to say people we know it's slow 
it's fine. Click here to see our status page, that kind of stuff. And I didn't have it, right? I didn't build it myself, but like, it's super easy to build, takes you a couple hours and then you're done. Same goes for the API to render PDFs from H2L templates kind of thing. Yeah, it's a bit more effort. You need to build like a, a backend system that can run all of these, these binaries and stuff, but it is something you can build. And the last idea I had was a building a browser extension generator that would build all different kinds of browser extensions for Chrome, Firefox, Safari, Edge um, from one single code base. Never really needed it because honestly, I could still get by doing the stuff manually. So none of the problems that I had noted down in my great notebook of ideas were actual critical problems. And that was because I was just trying to solve my own problems, but they were not critical because most of the critical problems in, in coding had been solved by other tools or I have not encountered them yet. And when it comes to finding problems that you can actually build a business around, looking at only your own problems, it does not guarantee that you find critical problems, right? You might find problems that you would potentially maybe eventually pay for, but that doesn't mean that other people would do the same. So it's very important to do problem validation, which is, I guess, the second step because you do problem exploration first, right? You, um, uh, in my in my my guide, zero to sold, which I released a couple of weeks ago, I go through the four stages of a bootstrap business, um, which is the preparation stage, of which this is a part, right? Problem uh, exploration and validation. Then you have. Um, the survival stage, and then you have stability and afterwards growth. But let's just talk about the first stage because in the first stage, you have to first come up with a product and then you have to build a business around it. And to come up with a product, you have to start with an audience. You have to start with a group of people that you suspect has a problem. And once you have this group of people and you've figured out that they're large enough to sustain a business, small enough not to be outcompeted by big companies immediately and actually willing to pay for solutions to their problems, then you look at their problems. And that kind of exploration, that problem exploration and validation phase is what we're talking about right now, right? This happens as a second step to finding a market that you're interested in. Finding a niche or finding a bigger market and then niching down later throughout the problem validation step, perfectly fine. But you have to start with something other than the product. You have to start with the opposite, which is the people that are gonna be using it. Because if you start with a product, you try to find um, a problem that your product solves, because you hopefully you're solving a problem with it, but who knows, Tinder for cats, what problem does that solve? Real problem, critical problem. And then once you find a problem that it maybe solves, you have to find the audience that is willing to pay for it. So you're going from something hilariously specific, which is your unique product, to something less specific, which is a problem it might be solving, to something broad like an audience. That is the inverted funnel. And you might end up with a product that solves no problem that has no audience that is willing to pay for it. However, if you start with an audience, if you start with a group of people, let's, let's say, I don't know, C-sharp developers, or plumbers in your area, or online English teachers, and you look at their products, uh, not a product, sorry, but you look at their problems. And C-sharp developers, I don't know, they probably have a lot of problems. 
IDE that doesn't work, or they need a, a an operate a tool to deploy things faster. Plumbers in your area, what would they need? Well, you look at all their problems. They probably have a lot of taxes to file. They probably have to coordinate like a traveling salesman type of uh, situation. They probably have to have inventory, and they probably have to do reporting as well. So um, maybe it should be Plumber Panda or something. Um, you find their problems, and um, you find the critical ones. You find the ones that they cannot avoid. You find the ones that they have all the time. That us all that always cost them something either time or money. All these kind of problems. You could find the article um, about finding the critical problem um, in Zero to Sold as well. You can find the guide at uh, bootstrapfounder.com slash zero dash two dash sold um, or just from the homepage in, in the preparation stage. Finding the critical problem is imperative. And to be able to find a critical problem, you have to find all the problems. And that is what we've been talking about today, validating the existence of problems and finding them all. Um, last week, I wrote on my blog, uh, thebootstrapfounder.com about finding the painful problems in a market. That would be the stage right ahead of this. And finding the critical problem would be the stage that follows this because obviously you need to find all the problems, you need to find the painful problems, and then you find the critical problem that you want to work on. With these three steps, you can then continue to finding a solution, which doesn't mean product, by the way. It just means a way of solving a problem. And once you have validated that with the customers, which you need to do before you start coding, uh, to be quite honest, also something that I had to learn painfully over the last couple of years. Once you have found a good solution to a problem, you start to build a product, you validate that, and then you have a business. I mean, you only really have a product, but you can build a business around it. And that's the whole point. So um, that, I think, concludes this uh, very first content episode of this podcast. Um, thank you so much for listening to the Bootstrap Founder Podcast. You can find me on Twitter at Avidkal, A-R-V-I-D-E-K-A-H-L. And you can check out the blog and the newsletter at thebootstrapfounder.com. Thank you very much and have a wonderful day. Bye-bye. <laughs>